right, our kids can head up to be with our team in Redemption Kids. And the rest of you can open your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We will be wrapping up chapter 1 this, this morning, starting in verse 9. And uh, as you turn there, I want to also welcome uh, any and all of our guests uh, who are able to make it maybe for the first time today. Uh, we're so thankful that you're here. Yeah, that's right. Clap it up for them. Uh, we love people because God loves people. And uh, we, we are super thankful that you chose to join us, whether here or online. Uh, if you are new, we would love for you to download our app. You can find it on any app store. And uh, there's a connect card on the homepage. We would love for you to take about 30 seconds, fill it out so we can get to know you and uh, encourage you wherever you are in your sp spiritual journey, whether this is all brand new for you or you've been following Christ many years. Uh, but this morning I want to help us think about what happens when someone meets Jesus, all right? What happens when you meet Jesus? We heard Derek's story. I've met Derek, uh, so grateful for what God has done in his life. And when Derek met Jesus, like, like really met him, he had his world turn upside down. And what we discover is, you know, Boston is full of people, thousands and thousands, even millions and millions of people throughout greater Boston that would say, you know what, uh, I believe that there is a God. I might even consider myself a little bit religious, or if I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, but not religious, right? And, and, and so many people have these ideas about who God is and who Jesus is. But so often they are flooded with different caricatures or assumptions and misperceptions about who Jesus really is. And it's our job and it's our opportunity to teach and communicate who Jesus has said that he is and what he has actually done for us and why that matters so that people can embrace the Jesus of the Bible and experience life and salvation in him. And then when a person really comes to know, not just kind of hear about, not just kind of be an acquaintance of, but to really know Jesus for all of who he is, then what happens is there is a radical reorientation of that person's life. It's not, listen, it is not just we do a few religious things like show up to, to church or mass on Sunday, right? Or, you know, uh, pray a few prayers on occasion. It's not just a, a, a list that we check, but there, there is something so transformational about coming to know and meet the real Jesus. And so what I want to share with you this morning, I hope you've experienced this. And if this is all new for you today, then maybe today is the day that you meet Jesus in the ways that I'm describing here this morning. But what we're going to see is that Jesus brings a radical reorientation to his followers. We think about radical, we're talking about not, not just a small or subtle change, but we're talking about a real, uh, impactful, life-changing transformation. And we come to 1 Thessalonians and we uh, should be reminded that Paul is celebrating, the author of this book, he's celebrating what God has done in these people who just months before had met the real Jesus and had their lives radically reoriented. 
If you remember, he's thanked them for what God has produced in them, their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. He's thanked them for, uh, thank God for how they have now not only followed the example of Christ and the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but they have even become an example themselves. And this is what he begins to talk about as we move into verses 9 and 10. He shares Two ways their faith is sounding forth, not just in the city of Thessalonica, but in the larger region as well. Look at what Paul writes here in verses 9 and 10. He says, for they themselves report concerning us. Let me pause there. When he says they themselves, he's talking about people who follow Jesus in the, the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. So, so believers, like you think Massachusetts, don't you think Massachusetts? Think New England. Think the Northeast, all right? This is the kind of area that Paul is describing, even larger really than that. And so he says these people from all around have, are talking about your faith, the kind of reception we had among you, and how, listen, how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This radical reorientation Jesus brings can be summarized in two words here, what Paul describes. This is an exhaustive list. Okay, Jesus does much more than what I'm going to share with you this morning. But this is what characterized the lives of these uh, new Thessalonian believers. Uh, the first word that I want you to, to come away with is transformation. Transformation. We, we see that they were transformed from counterfeit worship to True worship. From counterfeit to true worship. This is what's happening here, okay? Uh, Paul is in the city of Corinth where he writes this letter back to these people in Thessalonica. And Corinth was one of the major cities in Achaia. And so there were people from Macedonia, Philippi, Berea. There were people coming in from Thessalonica and, and, and Athens into Corinth. And they were giving Paul reports about the work that God had done. He, what they're saying is, these people are legit. They're really following Jesus. Jesus has really made a difference in their lives. And then he gives what could be the greatest evidence of that when he says these words. They turned to God from idols. It's a picture of transformation. It's a picture of a life that has been radically reoriented where we were moving and living one way. And then when we meet Jesus, we see that he has something better. And we turn and we begin walking with him. The word turn here carries the idea of making a turn. And this isn't just, uh, imagine if you're driving through Mefford Square, all right, and you're cruising down Main Street 25 miles per hour. And instead of, you know, you take a right on Mystic Valley Parkway, and that's a, that's a turn, right? But this isn't the kind of turn that Paul's talking about. He's talking about a Vin Diesel, fast and furious, 55 down a narrow city alley. And when he hits the intersection, he finds the perfect opportunity to, I wish I could do this, by the way, just hit that steering wheel, slam the brakes with a U-turn. 
like Tim Tran does on a racetrack, right? It's just, check out Tim's Instagram. This guy's a real race driver. I mean, whatever. Uh, so, very cool. Uh, but this is the, the kind of, it's not just a, a, a small turn. It's a, it's a U-turn. It's a one. 80. This word turn is the same, carries the same meaning. It's almost synonymous with the word that we find in the Bible, repent or repentance. It is to turn from something to something else. And this is so important. And this is, again, you talk about introducing people to Jesus. Maybe Jesus is new for you. Maybe you haven't, you know, even considered the things of, of God in a while. And that's, man, if that's your, your story, that is, we're so glad you're here. But, but, but sometimes we think, well, um, you know, to, to turn to, to Christ, it's really about giving up things that are bad. You know, like getting rid of the bad things in our lives. And listen, there are certainly some things that aren't good for us that God wants us to leave behind. Because he loves us. But sometimes people with the misperception of Christianity view it as only turning from things. In other words, can I translate, can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, can't do that. And if that's all that Christianity was, you can, you can, you can, you can, you can have it. What, what makes Christianity Christianity? What makes Christianity so good, as we sang about this morning, is that primarily not what we leave behind, but what we move toward, what we gain. Amen? It's not just forsaking some things that aren't healthy for us, the sin in our lives that, that don't match up with God's desires and intention for us, but it's receiving, it's grabbing hold of everything that God is and he wants for us. Jesus said, follow me. And so we're not just leaving certain things behind, but we're gaining Christ. We're, we're taking hold of all that he is. So when a person meets Jesus, listen, this is their story. It's twofold. Again, we, we first we turn from the counterfeit worship of idols. This, this language is intentional. It's counterfeit worship, that counterfeit worship of idols. What this looked like in the first century is this. Um, there were idols scattered all over the city of Thessalonica. Again, just like we think, you know, what's all over Boston? Dunkin' Donuts, Starbucks, right? like, they're just everywhere. Mom and pop pizza shops everywhere, right? And, and that's the, like the presence of idols in the city of Thessalonica. They were everywhere. And these idols had ties to the very fabric of society and, and the lives of people where uh, if, if they didn't worship these idols, then maybe, you know, the gods wouldn't be kind to them. The gods wouldn't send down rain or the gods wouldn't be pleased to make their businesses and families flourish. And not only that, then as Rome took over uh, that area of the world, there began to be this emperor worship going on where there were not just familial and financial ties, but there were even political ties where people were supposed to pledge their allegiance to Caesar. And the Thessalonians began to abandon those allegiances. And their abandonment of those allegiances was very costly. People began to demean them. They began to ostracize them. They even oppressed and persecuted them. 
For some, it meant their family would reject them. Others lost their jobs. Some, as we talked about last week, even lost their lives. It was a costly commitment. But these followers of Jesus had come to the understanding, the realization of what Psalm 115 talks about when it says this. Listen, it says, their idols... All of these other man-made gods that, that people worship and chase after. These idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Uh, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is what was going on. The Thessalonians saw this. The idols they once worshipped, were re- that, that was really nothing more than counterfeit worship. And here's the logic behind that, right? These idols aren't real. They can do nothing. They can't talk. They can't hear. They can't move. They can't feel. And because they're fake, that means my worship of them was also fake. It was false. There was nothing to it. There was no life there. There was no power there. And we must also come to this realization ourselves our idols may not be made of wood and silver and gold but we make idols in our own lives you see an idol is anything that becomes a god substitute in our lives an idol is is anything that we elevate that begins to get please listen that begins to get our best attention and best affection So I could list a hundred idols this morning, but all you need to do to figure out what idols are in your life is think about what gets your time, your attention, and what gets your love. What you love you think about, what you love you talk about, what, what you love gets you excited. And so now we can step back and start filling in the blank, right? Work, relationships accomplishments, possessions, entertainment, travel, sex. You fill in the blank. These are all things that that we elevate, the the good life, however you define it. They are all things that we chase after. And if we find ourselves, listen, by the way, I don't think anything that I just named is bad. It's only bad if we enjoy it in such a way that isn't connected to God and his provision of it so that it's worship instead of worshiping all those things. So if we find ourselves chasing after whatever it is harder than we're chasing after God, we've probably just identified an idol in our lives. And, and what Psalm 115, I hope you didn't miss what it was saying. Okay, listen, this is a warning. This is what we need to hear. Sometimes it's hard to hear the truth, but the truth sets us free. That's right. So 
When we chase after something harder than we chase after God, what happens to us? What happens to our hearts? They get numb. They grow cold. They grow more and more lifeless. That's what Psalm 115 said, right? Those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. So so if in your spiritual journey right now, you don't find yourself excited about the things of God, that like you come into worship and it takes you like three songs to kind of even begin to, oh yeah, like this this is real, this is true. It might be a signal that you have an idol in your life that you need to set aside so that you can focus on worshiping the true and living God. Because it is not just turning from counterfeit worship, but it is turning to God and true worship. And I love the contrast here that Paul gives. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, sometimes I just, I hear a little, uh, you know, spiritual smack talk. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there are some amazing stories of Larry Bird. I know, you know, I love Larry and uh, the legend where he would just, he would just say, I'm going to hit, I just saw a video on YouTube a little short this week where uh, he, he talked to the, to the Utah Jazz. Um, they never won a championship, do they? But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of smack talk, it just came out. So anyway, that wasn't in my notes. Anyway, so Larry says, hey, right here, three-pointer. He tells the bench, three-pointer. And then the next play, he drains a three right there from the corner. I mean, that's like some smack talk. And that's what Paul's doing here. It seems a little bit is that what he's saying, turning to the true, not fake, and living, not dead, God. Don't you love it? We turn to worship the true and the living God. Uh, this, this is This is an echo of Jeremiah 10.10 that says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting king. And so I want to ask you today, have you made this decision to turn from the thousands of idols that we all chase as human beings, myself included? Have you said, those don't really satisfy me? Because if they really satisfy me, I wouldn't have to look for another one or I wouldn't have to keep coming back to that and then finding that I don't have peace and I don't have joy and I'm not filled with everything that is good. Have you come to this place where, like Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, talk about it. Write this down and do some homework uh, this week. Where, where we find that these are like broken cisterns that don't hold water. They, in other words, they don't satisfy us. They're not like the fountain of living water that is found in God. God is the living God. He's the personal God. If, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never experienced the life that we're describing and singing about here this morning, today could be your day. Just say, Jesus, I'm all in with you. But listen, if you've made this decision, I know many, many, most of you probably have here in the room today, then, then we need to be aware that the presence of idols does not just disappear once we meet Jesus. But we have to be on constant guard against the idols that want to resurface in our life and grab our best attention and affection again. And I believe the best way that, that, that we can fight against this is to remember that God is the living and the true God. Remember, not just say, oh, this isn't good, but how good this is. 
God is the living God. He's the true God. Listen, I, I, I long, and I'm seeing this more and more in our church on Sundays and at fire nights. Friday night was amazing. And in our groups, I'm hearing the reports as well as experiencing our own group, how that people are experiencing and encountering the living God. God is alive. God is real. God is personal. And so I just want to ask you, even, even this morning, you know, we all got here somehow, right? We caught the, caught the bus, drove in, whatever. Um, in coming today, did you anticipate having an encounter with the living God? Did you expect to be aware of his presence? God is in the room right now. Did you expect to hear his voice? God is speaking right now. Did you expect to enjoy speaking to and singing to him? Like really enjoy it because God is a personal God. He's here. Did you anticipate wanting, I love this, wanting to stay just a little longer because you love spending time with him? You're enjoying more and more of, I got to say it again, third week in a row, the closeness that you both crave. Because God wants to be near to you. And you want to be near him. This is, this is so much of what it means to understand that God is the living God. He's the, tr the true God. He's a personal God. He's not, he's not a distant, but he's here. He is real. The word true can mean real. And this is part of our vision prayer this year, 2023. Uh, we're saying the blessing we bring will help people see God, you are real. You are alive, living. You are unignorable. When people see that God, when people see that God is alive and that He is true, that He is real, they won't be able to ignore Him any longer. And neither will we listen. I gotta just say this: this is normal Christianity. What I'm talking about is normal Christianity. Like you wake up in the morning and you don't just open your Bible because someone told you that's the thing to do. But you open your Bible and you already know. You already know that you are going to, it's going to be like sitting across from your best friend. He's real. He's living. He's true. He's personal. God, and we exist to serve him. This not only refers to our worship and praise, but it includes, please listen to this, the devotion of simple obedience. Simple obedience. God, help us as a people. God, help Pastor Tanner, Lord. Help Redemption Hall Church to just move forward in simple obedience. You say, Pastor Tanner, what does a servant do? A servant does anything that is asked of them. Right? Amen? So whatever it is that God has asked us to do, we, we seek to do it with all of our hearts. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God by living out his mission as a community, what? Transformed. Transformed by the gospel. So I want to give you, I want to give you encouragement just to really press into this this week. We are... One and a half weeks into Lent. Lent is a season where the church historically has practiced fasting 
giving up maybe food or something else in our lives that we normally enjoy so that we can focus more on our relationship with God and draw near to him. So you're going to be surprised by what I'm about to tell you. Guess what? Pastor Tanner has not started fasting from anything intentionally. Anybody surprised by that? I mean, maybe you are, maybe you're like, ah, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> but, but I, but I want to share that because, listen, do I feel bad? Do I feel guilty about that? No, I don't. I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it a little bit, but I haven't come to a decision. I just want to do stuff to do stuff. But I know that there are about six weeks left in Lent, and now there's an opportunity for me to, what, what the direction is, I'm going to give up food, I'm going to give up meals, certain meals through the week, and I'm going to give up technology. I'm going to put my phone away out of sight for certain hours of the day so I'm not distracted and I can take the time that I would have been eating or I would have been doing all the things we do on our phones just to spend more time focused on my relationship with God. We, we, see, we, Jesus said when you fast. So he expects his followers to fast He expects us to give up things that we lean on, that we need and want so that we can say, rather than receiving all these things that I normally receive, I'm going to, check this out, I'm going to release them so that in the releasing of them, I can receive something better, God, which is more of you. And let me preach just for a second. This doesn't just mean, fam, this doesn't just mean reading your Bible and praying. Now, word to the wise, you should probably be reading your Bible and praying, right? But it's not just that. Go read Isaiah 58. He said, this is the fast I want to see. To loosen the chains of injustice. To care for the poor. This is what I want to see. We can give up things so that we can go serve other people and represent Jesus to them. So I want to ask you this morning, what should you release? What should you release? And how should you receive more of God in your life? I saw a picture of this uh, just last month. Pastor Reddy will get a kick out of this story. So um, our community center in Mefford Square, awesome space. We have staff out of there. We have events there. We have groups there. Uh, we have our, our prayer nights there. And uh, in December, it was a little chilly up in there as the winter months were setting in. And so we kept, like, bumping up the, the, the thermostat, and it wasn't getting any warmer. So we call our, our, our service people, technician. They come out do some things, get on the roof, do, uh, fix it, and we're like, we're good. And then the next day, 69, 68, you see it was 67, 66, 60, 60, 60 degrees again. Like, this isn't working. <laughs> we call them back. Happens again. And so we, they come, get it set. 69, 68, 66, 75, 60 degrees again. It's like, something's not right. So they come back a third time. And what they told us is it's not the defrost coil that we thought wasn't working properly. And it wasn't just the speculation that now it's 
10 degree air outside and the system may not be able to keep up. But what had happened was this, that the first, I think on the first time that they, they came to visit, they must have knocked a setting that enabled the air condition to run while the heat was running. So, so while there were there was 70-degree air blowing into the community center. At the same time, there was 50-degree air blowing into the center, and it never got warm enough. Which is kind of frustrating, but God gives grace for that, right? So anyway, but then, but then we step back and we said, you know what? This is, this is how our lives work. This is how the Christian life works, that, that we're seeking to worship God, the true and living God, and we're seeking to experience the fire and the heat that comes from his presence. And yet there is so much coming at us that is blowing cold air on the surface of our souls. And we need to recognize that and be watchful and mindful of, of the things in our lives that, that, that come against the, our devotion to Christ. So there's some things that we need to release in order to receive more and more. I want to I encourage you, make a decision. Don't just like hear this on a Sunday morning and be like, okay, great, Pastor Tanner's going to give a few meals and whatever. And I love my phone and that would be good and I know that. And it's just like, whatever, it doesn't have to be either of those things. But make a decision to release in order to receive. So number one, what we see here is transformation. There was transformation from counterfeit worship to true worship. But then number two, there was also anticipation. Anticipation. And what were they anticipating? They were anticipating nothing less than the salvation of the risen son. Look at verse 10 again. It says this. They not only turned to God from idols to serve the, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, but verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want you to think about this. This kind of blows my mind. How long have these Thessalonians been following Jesus? Not long. Certainly weeks. Probably months. But not many months. And yet... One way that they're exemplary is that they, are, they had just met Jesus and now they are, they're already waiting. They're wanting him to come back. They have been taught that Jesus not only lived a perfect life and died in our place on a Roman cross, but then rose from the dead and then ascended to God the Father after 40 days. And they knew that before he ascended, he promised that he would return. And they were probably familiar with the words of the angel in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, that says, in the same way you saw him go into heaven, you will see him return. And so they're waiting, they're waiting, they're anticipating. And I don't know about you, but, but this, is, this is an area of my Christian life that I struggle in. If I'm being honest, if I take an inventory of my life, I don't find myself thinking about the return of Christ. I don't find myself praying about the return of Christ. And I don't find myself waiting, anticipating his return. Nearly enough. And maybe you would say, Pastor Tanner, I'm in the same boat. And I think, I think part of that is like 
we live in such a comfortable culture. We, we live in a world where, yeah, things are going on. It's not the greatest, but things are pretty good, right? And, and so just because things are so good here, we're not remembering and reflecting that there is so much, something so much better that lies off in the distance with the return of Jesus. But I think, I, I love this, I think what can help us what can stir our hearts to want, anticipate, long for, look for, count down the days to the return of Christ. And I know some of my theologians in the, in the, in the room today just thought, Pastor Tanner, you can't count down the days because no one knows the day or the hour. That's right. But we can count them down because we can say it's one less day than it was when I first came to know Jesus, right? I'll just preach a little. Anyway, this is just for fun. That's just for fun. That's just for fun. Um, so so what, what will help us anticipate what Paul says right here? What he says about Jesus. He says that we wait for the Son of, from heaven, raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Look, look at how Jesus is described here. If you want to anticipate the return of Jesus more, get to know Jesus. So first he's the son from heaven. This, this uh, refers to him being in the dwelling place with God the Father and, and eventually returning from his dwelling place in heaven to earth. It's also surely a, a term of endearment that Jesus is the son of, from heaven. He's the son of heaven. That he's the one and only son of God who God loved us so much that he would send his son from the perfection of heaven to enter our brokenness in order that he might save and rescue us. So we anticipate that this son from heaven is going to come back. And this son from heaven is the one who was raised from the dead. Again, the contrast. It's not surprising that Paul talks about worshiping not idols any longer, but the true and living God. And then he starts talking about the son who is also alive, not dead, but was raised from the dead. As we're going to celebrate on Easter in about four or five weeks, five weeks, right? Um, and, 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 and to rejoice in all of what his resurrection means for us. Which, by the way, I want to say this. God's been putting this on my heart this week. And this may just be for me, but if it's for you, then take and run with it, all right? God is telling me, hey, there are people in your life that you've been praying for, you've been caring about, you've been, you know, telling about Jesus, you've been inviting. Invite them early this year. Invite them early. Specific names, people that God is bringing to mind. Say, invite them early. Give them an opportunity to circle the date on their calendar, April 9th. It's April 9th, right? Everyone can find out what Easter is. I think it's every time. It's like, and just tell them to make plans to join you. But, but, but what we see here in the resurrection, there are two really important historical notes that I want to I point out here. Because this should, this should elevate your confidence in the truthfulness of Christianity, who Jesus is and what he's done. Number one, think about this. These words were written by Paul roughly, we said, uh, you know, when we started the series, 51 AD. That is, that is less than or roughly 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, so what this tells us is that these early followers of Jesus were so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that they, 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 they accepted it as the essential truth of their faith. 
And this pushes back against skeptics and, and, and skeptical scholars who would say, well, Christianity as we know it wasn't really established until the 4th century with the Emperor Constantine, who once he became uh, in power and he made Christianity, the official state religion, then people really got clear that, oh, Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, he really rose from the dead. Oh, he really did all these things. But what we see is that this was established as, as truth, as fact. It was accepted as early as two decades. I mean, really, what we see in Acts is immediately after Jesus ascend, rose and then ascended, the, the earliest followers were accepting it as true. Which leads me to the second thought I want to share from Gordon Fee where he says this. What is further significant in this reference is the absolutely presuppositional way it is mentioned. And you say, what are you talking about, Pastor Tanner? Okay, that is a scholarly way of saying Paul could speak so bluntly about the resurrection because it was already accepted as truth and unquestioned historical fact among those who believe. Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything about our present and future lives. He's the son from heaven, raised from the dead. And his name is Jesus, the historic person of Nazareth. Jesus is fully human, but he's also the son from heaven. He is fully God. And he is the only one who can live up to his name Yeshua, Jesus, which means God saves. God saves. God sent his son into the world to save us from our sin and our brokenness and to bring his healing and salvation to us. And this is what Paul talks about here in the final phrase. He says that we wait from, for the son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word deliver can mean to rescue or to save. It carries the idea, follow me, it carries the idea of being transferred from one position or state to another. And so we see all of these metaphors in the Bible that tell us about how Jesus has saved us and delivered us from darkness to light, from death to light, life, from Satan's team to God's team, from people deserving God's wrath to trophies of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 talks about all of that. <laughs> you say, well, Tanner, what is God's wrath? God's wrath is his just judgment and anger against our sin and everything that opposes his glory. How perfect and beautiful and true he is. And this wrath is coming when God judges the world first at our death and eventually coming at the very end of the world. So a verse that, that would be good to become familiar with and, and even know by heart is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that it says, For it is appointed for a person to die once, 
And after that comes judgment. That's why we don't believe in purgatory, by the way, is because the Bible says that you're going to die and then be judged. No gaps. But the point I'm trying to make today is this, that we will all be judged. And apart from God's grace, apart from experiencing his love and the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross when he died for Tanner Turley's sin, thank you, Jesus, on the cross, instead of me having to die for my own sin, Jesus took my sin on himself so that I could be free and not receive the just judgment and the penalty for my sin that I deserve, which is death and separation from God forever. And I know we live in a culture that would say, we love that God is love, but we don't love that God is judge. We don't want God to have any anger toward the things that make us angry. You follow me? You follow follow me? Nod your head if you follow me. Like we can be angry about it, but don't let God be angry. If you feel that wrath is wrong, just ask yourself, am I okay with injustice? This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. What shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath? By no means. For how then could God judge the world? We need a God who loves us unconditionally, who offers us grace and forgiveness and an invitation into the life that he created us for. But we also need a God who punishes sin and judges all of the sin and brokenness in the world, even when that is still harbored deep within our souls. And so again, I want to ask you, are you you ready for the judgment? If you die today, are you ready to meet God and to, are you confident that you would step into the life that he has prepared for you, eternal life? Or would you say, you know what, I wasn't ready. I rejected God for, for my, my entire life and, and now I'm going to be separated from him forever. We all have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to say yes right now. Revelation 22, verse 20 says this. He who testifies to these things, Jesus Christ himself says this. Surely I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. And our response is, amen, come Lord Jesus. So it's our our responsibility to be ready. To be living a life of true worship. the, the, The true worship of the living and the true God. To anticipate his return. This is what happens when someone meets Jesus. And the final word, listen, the final word I want to share with you today, please don't miss this, okay, is that God has so much that he wants for you. He does. My, my, my friend and, and, and counselor Chip Jeff says this, uh, the greatest theft of the enemy, listen, the greatest theft of the enemy is not going to be taking what we have but keeping us from getting everything God wants to give. Did you hear that? 
I should have heard some like wows, grunts, moans, mmms, amens. Okay, let me read it again because I'm afraid that you missed it. So I'm going to just read it one more time. The greatest theft of the enemy, what, what Satan, what the, the powers of darkness are trying to take from us is, is this. It's not going to be taking what we have, but it's going to be keeping us from getting everything God wants to give. This is, this is what I'm trying to say. God wants more for you. He wants more. He wants to give you more. He wants to work more transformation in your life. He wants, he wants to, to create deeper desires and longings for more of an intimate relationship with him. He wants you to, to long in such a way. He wants to produce this in you where you would say, I'm ready. I'm looking for the return of my Savior. Because everything that awaits me is so much better than everything I'm experiencing around me. And so let's take a moment just to pray into that. And then we're going to sing about it. Father, we thank you that you are the giver. You are the giver. You're not a thief, God. You don't take from us, but you desire to give. And God, we're thankful that you give us every good thing. We're thankful that you offer us salvation and eternal and abundant life through Jesus Christ. And God, we're, we're thankful that you showed us that the idols that we once chased, whatever they were, God, they're not worth it. They don't really satisfy and so, God, would you show us very specifically, God, show us what it looks like to release. God, bring specific things to mind, even before we leave today, things that we need to release so that we can receive more of you and more from you. God, we're ready. We're saying transform us. We're asking you to work in our church in such a way that more of heaven touches our hearts. More of heaven touches our homes. More of heaven touches our church. More of heaven touches our city because we are so lit up by you and your presence. And so, God, we open our hands to receive even now. Even now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.